Hi, church family. My name is Brianne Nicholson, and I'm coming to you from my home in North Portland. And I'm happy to be able to bring you God's word today. And we'll be reading Micah 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief, I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let, let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are a God that has plans for us. You are a good God. Lord, we quiet our minds before you this morning, surrender our thoughts, our anxieties, any sicknesses we feel. We trust you, Lord. We open our hearts to what um, your word says and what uh, Cameron has to, to teach us today. Amen. Do you have something you're too scared to hope for? Maybe a hope that seems too unrealistic or too lofty, too big. Maybe something you've never had the guts to share with anybody out of fear of sounding ridiculous or naive. Um, but, but the hope is in there nonetheless. I've had maybe to uh, the outside critic some silly ones. Um, there was a time when I legitimately hoped of being a prolific rapper slash producer. Uh, it hasn't panned out yet, um, 
maybe slightly more realistically. I've had hopes um, for the various bands I've been a part of that were maybe a little over the top. Um, I've had pretty high hopes related to the kind of husband and the kind of father and even the kind of pastor I've wanted to be. Um, I've Beyond that, I've even had some hopes for the kinds of kingdom impact I've hoped that Door of Hope Southeast and now Door of Hope Northeast could have uh, in our city um, that, that, that almost start to seem just foolish and outlandish uh, if I begin to put words to them. And my hunch is that we all have certain things that we keep in our hearts um, that sort of straddle this line between a deep, hopeful longing and something we just dismiss as too unrealistic. Um, in studying today's passage of Micah 4, I found myself in this interplay between some of my deepest hopes, legitimately, and, and my sin-born cynicism. Uh, the interplay between the, these two things was just bouncing back and forth as I studied this passage. And the Bible often has this way of speaking to these almost like primordial hopes within us and daring us to give ourselves over to them, daring us to believe. I'm telling us that, that for once, maybe not about anything else, but for once we can legitimately hope in something this grand, that, that God has made promises that speak to our deepest longings and that he calls us to believe those promises, um, to trust him. And that though we may have reason to doubt everything else like them, we are to fight to trust the hope-filled promises of God. And so in Micah, for three chapters now, chapters 1 and 2 we looked at the first week, chapter 3 we looked at last week, Micah has been primarily delivering a message of impending judgment and hardship. Um, but in chapter 4, it's like he stops dead in his tracks and he turns his eyes to some far off hope uh, to reassure his readers that all is not lost. And this hope has so, 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 so much to speak to us today. And so let's jump in to Micah chapter four and see where this takes us. Um, the first words of Micah chapter four are, it shall come about in the latter days, or some translations will read in the last days. And in the, the last days, when you see that phrase in the prophets, it's usually referring to some far off period of time that theologians call the eschaton or the end times or the end, the last things. It's, it's some period of time in the distant future when God will work in a new way to bring his plan to sort of its final conclusion. And related to that is the concept of the day of the Lord, which is this final decisive moment when God executes his justice in the world. And there are all kinds of little events that kind of prefigure that and foreshadow that. But there's one decisive one the prophets seem to be speaking of that's yet to come. And it's interesting that, that Micah can pivot uh, immediately between a prophecy about the, the very near future to this distant last days kind of end of the world type of future, just on a dime. Um, in many of the prophets, you'll see this. For them, their prophecies, we've talked about this before, their prophecies almost work like 
um, looking head on on several mountains. So if we're looking head on and there were multiple peaks kind of stacked directly in a line, from the prophet's perspective, it can be hard to know exactly where one peak starts and the other ends, and it can all sort of look like one thing, but they can tell there's some distinction. And it takes, uh, it takes getting a different perspective, oftentimes getting even the perspective that comes with the New Testament, where we can kind of come to the side and start to see the peaks sort of laid out and see the distinctions and the relationships between them more clearly. Um, but by telling us explicitly that he's dealing with the last days, <laughs> um, he's giving us a very, very important uh, clue about uh, the fact that he's looking at something much more distant now than what he's been talking about so far in Micah. Um, it's as if Micah is saying, like, look, I know this is scary. Um, I know that the judgment of God <laughs> that has to come to you, though justified, is terrifying and is painful. Um, but remember that this moment of hardship is not the end of the story. It's just not. Let me tell you about another day that's coming. That's what Micah is doing here in this first part of chapter 4. And so what does he want to tell us about the last days? What does Micah have to say about them? Well, first, um, he's, we're actually going to do, th- I'm just going to give you the preview here. He's going to give us three kind of big categories to talk about. The first is this, the last days are going to be days of unified worship. Um, he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills there in verse one. The, remember at the beginning of Micah, uh, it talked about God coming from his seat uh, and kind of destroying the high places and making the high things and the mountains low, bringing everything that was lofty and prideful and humbling it. But now we see that the mountain is going to be reestablished and brought back low. What was laid low because of sin and idolatry is going to be raised back up in righteousness and truth. And Mount Zion, which usually refers to Jerusalem or more specifically the Temple Mount, um, which was the place where God's presence dwelled there in the temple and where the worship of him primarily happened, it was going to be restored. It's part of what Mike is saying. So God will reestablish his holy temple and his holy people to their holy purpose. That's what he's getting at. But then we see as we move to the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2 that the people are going to flow to the mountain of the Lord as was always intended. And we've talked about this multiple times. We talked about the very first week of our race series several weeks ago that Israel was not meant to be some sort of exclusive insular worshiping community. They were always meant to serve as a priestly nation, a nation that mediated the presence of God to the other nations, that was a beacon to the other nations to come and to find and to follow Yahweh, the one true God. And repeatedly, Israel failed in this purpose. Repeatedly. They gave themselves over to sin and to rebellion, uh, and they profaned the name of God amongst the nations, But here, God promises that one day the mountain of the Lord is going to serve its intended purpose again. He says many peoples and many nations, this diverse collection of people who look different from one another and speak different from one another and have different cultures and customs and gifts different from one another. 
from all across the globe, they're going to, quote, flow to it, and they will come, and they will, quote, go up to the mountain of the Lord. Micah promises that God's worshiping people will finally be the invitational, welcoming uh, community that they were always meant to be. But the second half of verse 4 shows us that the nations are going to be united in obedience to the ways of God. It says, The nations of the world will say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So it's not just that the nations come to be spectators, but the diverse nations of the world will find unity in common reception of the word of God, the law of God, the ways of God. They will each desire to know him and to walk in his paths. So all this can be summarized by saying the nations will be united in common worship to Yahweh, the God of the universe. But what will that look like? I mean, practically. Well, he keeps going. So point number two is that he, he's, he's telling us that the last days are going to be days of international peace. That's going to be one of the results of this unified worshiping community. Verse 3, he says, it tells us that, that uh, the perfect judge himself is going to come and settle all disputes. It says, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. What this means is that this is going to be a day of perfect justice. And in a day when so many of us are questioning the impartiality and the trustworthiness of our own criminal justice system in the U.S., this is a promise that resonates. The fact of the matter is that even when our system is functioning at its best, which we should always pray for, it, it's still always executed by sinful men and sinful women with incomplete information and with faulty wisdom and faulty logic. And we are fully capable of getting it wrong, even at our best. I mean, people can be sentenced to the death penalty wrongly and often are. Um, and this is to say nothing of when our criminal justice system is functioning at its worst, uh, at its worst with, with intentional uh, misapplication of the law with intentional harming of people um, as a book like Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy just captures so, so powerfully. But I believe at its heart that every deep longing for true and sincere justice in our world is a longing that is placed there by God and, and fundamentally can only be satisfied by God. And we make no mistake, we are tasked with passionately pursuing that justice in the here and now as a reflection of him. Um, even as we acknowledge the impossibility of getting it fully at all times and in all places in our sin-stained world. But a day is coming, Micah says, when the mistakes and the mishandlings and the perversions of justice will be finished. Because God, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This God, 
will come to judge between the nations and finally settle all disputes. And that means that the perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly impartial, perfectly all-knowing, perfectly wise, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving, perfectly righteousness, I'll say it again, perfectly just one, will settle it all. Have you been yearning for that this past year? Have you yearned for it? Or maybe you've lost the ability to hope in something as big, as huge, as beautiful as that. Well, Micah's word to you is the same word he gave to the broken kingdom of Judah all these years ago. Don't lose hope. That day is coming. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, verse 3 and 4. He says that the... That what's going to happen is that the people are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What he's saying is that weapons of war will be turned into weapons of farming and cultivation and beauty. And tools of death are going to be turned into tools for bringing forth life. Or as one commentator put it, instruments of violence will become instruments of the vineyard. I love that image. And note that it's, it's not through taking everyone somewhere new. It's the transformation and redemption and recreation of the things of this world into something better. But why? Why no more swords and all that they represent? Because we don't need them anymore. We won't need them anymore. More. He goes on to say, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Let that sentence sink in. Sink in. Neither shall the people learn war anymore. And then it says that they shall sit every man under his fig and under his, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. It's the image of the ability to work the land without fear, to enjoy the gift of work, gift of production that God has given us without anxiety for fear of, of, a, of a tyrant coming and taking by force. So again, in a day when our own country, not to speak of the countless other countries around the world, just seems to be constantly engaged in so many wars that most of us have no choice but to sort of allow ourselves to become desensitized to the monumental death counts and just the life-shattering destabilization that's happening to image bearers all around the world every day. Um, a statement like this in a world like this sounds like a pipe dream. A call for world peace has almost become like a laughable joke as we see like celebrities call for that at award shows and stuff. It sounds so nice and so impossibly trite at the same time. Um, but again, this yearning, this yearning for true peace is a yearning that lives or at least ought to live in each of our hearts. When we can get past our own hopelessness, when we allow ourselves to hope beyond what's achievable through merely human means. These statements in Micah speak to this deep longing that's, that's relevant in 2020 just as, as much as it was to the ancient people of the kingdom of Judah 
uh, probably just as much as it might have been if it was spoken to Adam and Eve on their ejection from the garden. For the women listening, like, can you imagine a life where you never have to encounter the threat of violence as you go about it? For the men listening, and I speak to each of you separately because it's, it's uniquely carried by each of us. But men, can you imagine a life where you never have to consider the threat of violence as you go about your life? Or, or for everyone, can you, can you imagine where you never have to think about violence encroaching on your loved ones or on your children? God, through Micah, says that those days are coming. It's not a pipe dream. He's going to bring it. And then finally, we see in verse 5 that all of this is going to be made possible because of the common allegiance to the Lord. It's not wishful thinking or some amazing feat of social engineering that's going to achieve this kind of international peace. It's the bending of the knee to God and his kingdom that makes it possible. It's the willful humbling of oneself in faith and repentance that secures entry into this new day. Micah says, presently, all the peoples walk each in the name of its own God. And we just look around our world and we can see the fruit of that, the result of that. And it's not pretty. But on that day, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There is no other source of unity like unity in God. There is nothing else that can bring the kind of rich international diversity right next to profound peacemaking unity besides him. And it's a peace note that will be unending with no fear of another descent into another fall or sin or rebellion or anything like that. And so there you go. Mike has shown us the last days will be days of unified worship and now days of uh, international peace. And he has one more thing to show us about the last days. And that's that these will be days of restoration for the weak. Verses 6 through 8. The lame and the driven away and the cast off will be regathered and reestablished. The lame, referring to those with physical defects, those who've been driven away, those who have been driven and stripped from their homeland, and those whom I have afflicted, those who have borne the judgment of God previously, but have turned toward him and will be reestablished. Though each of these groups has been downtrodden and scattered and defeated, they're going to be assembled. And they're going to be built back up into a strong nation with God reigning over them as righteous king. Who does that, whose values does that, does that sound like? It's got Jesus written all over it. Okay, there you go. Micah's prophecy of the last days, days of unified worship, days of international peace, days of restoration for the weak in God. And for me, this is legitimately beautiful, inspiring, hope-stirring vision, and I hope it's the same for you. But, but the thing about biblical hope is that it does not just paper over or ignore present difficulty. 
Um, for me, this is actually one of the great reassurances that what we, what we believe in, in believing the scriptures and believing the testimony of God, um, is not just nice or comforting. It's not something we could just believe in. It's, oh, it kind of adds some benefit to my life and it kind of helps me get through the day. It kind of helps give me a sense of meaning. No, it's actually true. This is one of the things that confirms for me, helps me understand this is actually true. Is that Micah can situate this glorious vision of this future hope right next to three chapters of painful judgment. And he can talk about what is to come in the glorious day of the Lord while realistically dealing with what's going to come the week after next. In a pain-filled week after next. Biblical hope is never unrealistic hope. And so those of you who have or who are going through something like incredibly hard or tragic, you know, you know the sting of, of sharing that pain with someone only to be met with sort of a platitude like, yeah, but you know, you just got to find your joy in Christ or yeah, yeah, you know, everything has a reason or ah, that's what heaven's for. It'll all work out. Each of these statements has a kernel of truth, maybe more than a kernel. But divorced from the acknowledgement of the depth of pain that we really can and do suffer in this world, these statements are just hollow. Um, God doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. The biblical authors didn't do that. The prophet Micah didn't do that. So now in verses 9 through 13, to close the chapter, Micah reminds the Judahites that things are bad. And not only that, they're going to get worse before they get better. So verses 9 and 11 tell us things are bad. He's kind of returning his attention to the present here. He's like, look, multiple things are bad here. He, he mocks their current king there in verse 9. He's basically saying, what's wrong? Don't you have a great and wise king to lead you through these troubling times? But their kings were more often than not terrible and no help to them whatsoever. Or verse 11, Micah reminds them that many nations currently are assembled against you. Like, yeah, we've got this day of peace coming, but right now they want to kill you. And they're gathering and chomping at the bit to see your destruction. Then verse 10, he says, things are going to get worse. He says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. So not only do the nations hate them, but Babylon specifically will take them into captivity. And Judah, you're going to be stripped from your land. You're going to be hauled away by this oppressive enemy. Uh, Micah's already mentioned this, but now he identifies the oppressor. It's Babylon, that sort of archetypical, big, bad, evil nation set against God. And this did happen historically. The Bible recounts it later. They were, in fact, taken into exile in Babylon. But then he says things will be redeemed. Things were bad. Things are going to get worse. But things will be redeemed. God will rescue them from Babylon. He'll preserve them through this difficult time of judgment that's coming. And though these rival nations, these, these oppressor nations, um, they, they plan to destroy Israel, they actually have no clue about God's long-term plan, which was ultimately to preserve a faithful remnant of his people 
and to judge the oppressive nations themselves. The same oppressive nations that God was using to judge Israel for its sin, they themselves would ultimately have to face that same judgment from God. And in his righteousness, he could not let their sin flourish either. But to kind of summarize all this or or to cast it in a different light, I, I want you to notice the illustration or the image that Micah uses, that of labor pains. His point is that future hope can change everything about present suffering. Look, I've never been in labor to the shock of uh, hopefully all of you, um, but, but I have witnessed it up close twice. And by all accounts, certainly by my wife's account, um, it, it, it's, it can be, often is, usually is, absolutely excruciating. Um, but it's a pain in service of one of the most beautiful, like amazing privileges and gifts imaginable, bringing a human soul out into the world. And a pain, so a pain like labor pain for its own sake produces only despair. Um, only despair comes, but a pain like this for a glorious goal like childbirth in light of the, the, the hope just beyond of seeing this new life that produces resolute, steadfast, transformational joy. Look, I know many of us are suffering right now. Um, for many of us, the last nine months have been some of the most difficult of our lives. Um, some of you have dealt with devastating personal loss. Some of you are in the middle of maybe the most painfully crushing season of marriage or of parenting that you've ever been in. Some of you have felt more isolated and alone these past months than you ever have before. Some of you have dealt with just pervasive, consistent financial hardship. Some of you have been tempted and given into sins that you never thought you would. And are just racked with guilt and insecurity. Uh, some of your mental health is hanging on by a thread and definitely wasn't served by the governor's announcement Friday of, of more extensive COVID lockdowns. And God is not asking you to pretend that things don't feel impossible right now. He's not. Um, things really often do. <laughs> For me too. But God doesn't want you to pretend that everything's okay. Um, and I believe the best thing that you can do with your pain and your fear and your disappointment is to take them as fully as you can figure out how to, to God in prayer and to your community. And at the same time, as all of that is true, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak a word of hope to all of us through this passage. That no matter what we're experiencing, at the risk of sounding trite, I know, God has not abandoned us. And whatever tomorrow or the day after that looks like, it might look really bad. If you're in Christ, your future is secure. He is for you. He has already set a very final and very real 
expiration date for all of your hardships. And from now until then, no matter what it looks like, he's present alongside us, supplying all we need to take that one more step. We will all suffer in this life. Christ promised it. But it will end. The suffering will end. And may we not suffer as those who have no hope. May our very real suffering be transformed by that hope. So to conclude, this is the message of Micah 4 in reverse order here. The last few verses deal with this this prophecy of a near shorter mountain. Call it a hill that Micah tells them about. God is leading them into exile in Babylon. Things are bad. They're going to get worse, but they'll be restored. They're going to be restored from that exile. A remnant of faithful people will be preserved and they'll be able to return to their land and worship at the temple. It's going to be a great day. And it happened historically. We have, we have those stories towards the end of our Old Testament. But that was only a shadow of a much greater day that was yet to come. And it's also that there's how the chapter started, that there's this distant mountain peak that Mike is calling their attention to. It's, it's the latter days or the last days on the other side of that great and final day of the Lord. It's a day sometime in the future when God will reign as king and preside over the whole earth. And it will be a day for all the nations of the earth of common worship of God, common peace established by God, restoration of the weak and afflicted by God. In Christian theology, we recognize this as the future coming of the kingdom of God in full. But there's a middle mountain peak between those two that that, that Micah has only hinted at, that we actually have the privilege of seeing, of recognizing from our unique vantage point in 2020 with a New Testament in our hands that, that chronicles the life and ministry of Jesus. Remember that Matthew records that when Jesus went out to begin his public ministry, as he was going, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember that Jesus, who identified himself as the temple of God, the place where God was dwelling in the earth, most fully, this was God in flesh. This same Jesus was lifted up on the cross, literally on Mount Zion, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. He took the punishment for our sins, for our idolatry, for our injustice, for our war making, for our rejection of his command and rule, and on and on and on. He took the punishment that was due to you and due to me on the cross, and he offers us his perfect righteousness. And when we believe in him and confess him as Lord, we're invited into his family, into his church, actually into his kingdom. And in Acts 2, Peter identified the age that we currently live in on this side of the ministry of Jesus and this side of the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost as the last days. Did you know that? So we're in this time between the time where the last days have started in some sense, but they're yet to come in full Uh, We're we're in a time where Jesus is reigning as king at the right hand of God, but we're still waiting for that final day of the Lord, Jesus' second coming, where he brings his reign fully, which we understand as that final day of peace that Micah prophesied about. That glorious day Micah was talking about is the day that Jesus 
comes to bring in full at his second coming. But in the here and now, in the church, we even have the beginning of this, as we are in the last days, in a sense. We have the nations streaming to worship the God of Israel. There are over 2 billion Christians around the world, the vast majority of which are not of Jewish descent, nor are the vast majority American or of European descent, for that matter. Um, God is already building this international people for himself as Christ is lifted up. And as God establishes his church and his kingdom rule across our world, person by person and community by community from nation to nation, we are getting to see this glimpse in real time, this preview of that day. That great and awesome day of the Lord when God reigns finally and literally and fully over an international people united in worship and peace and the lowly restored and built into a great nation that is good news because Jesus himself is on the throne, the one who is reigning. So, Door of Hope Northeast, whatever sources of stress and anxiety and fear and doubt and insecurity you're dealing with right now, I pray that Micah 4 would remind you of some of the glorious promises that God has for you. That you wouldn't be afraid to hope in them. And that those promises would somehow transform your present griefs from sort of meaningless shots of pain to ones like labor pains. Pains that butt up against and get transformed by that hope beyond the hills. Um, God has not promised us a a pain-free life. In fact, just the opposite. He hasn't promised us earthly prosperity in the here and now. Um, But he does promise that a day is coming when even our most striking pain will be but a distant memory. And many of the deepest, most righteous hopes that we're afraid to utter will be right in front of us. Do you believe that? God is good. Christ is king. And the future is bright. And so as Micah challenged the ancient kingdom of Judah, I challenge you, may we not lose our hope. Amen.